Hello? It's not over. You are our last chance. How do we end this? You have to go back to 1978. The first day of camp. Welcome to the Final Girls podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. I'm Anna, I'm the co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. And as we are currently in between seasons of the podcast, we are doing special bonus episodes diving into every single one of the installments of the Fear Street trilogy. The first part of which, Fear Street 1994, is out on Netflix already, came out last week. And the second one, Fear Street 1978, is just out now. So we are doing three bonus episodes, each one of them, diving into and dissecting all the things about Fear Street. Last week, and I will link it in the show notes, we did a deep dive into Fear Street 1994. And this week, to rip apart, pardon my pun everything about Fear Street 1978, I've got special guest Dr. Alison Pierce to talk about our thoughts on Fear Street 1978, the character building, the influences of both classic and 90s slasher films. So it is a meaty, meaty discussion and I hope you enjoyed it. If you have not yet seen Fear Street 1978, we pretty much discuss spoiler content from the very start so I do suggest if you care about that sort of thing please watch the film first we have a light conversation about 1994 at the beginning um, and we absolutely do not spoil or say anything about the future and final installment Fear Street 1666 if you enjoy this episode please do rate the podcast and leave us a little review over an Apple podcast, especially as we are in between seasons. It really helps people discover the show and we will be announcing the theme and the films that we'll be covering in our next season very soon. We also have an exclusive interview with Fear Street director Lee Janiak coming out very soon. You will hear a little excerpt from that interview in this episode and the full one will be released um, next week as a standalone episode so watch out for that and with all of that said please enjoy my deep dive with Dr. Alison Pierce into Fear Street 1978. Alison welcome back onto the podcast how have you been? I've been um, wonderful. Thank you, Anna. And thank you so much for having me back on. I'm really excited to talk about all this today. So I'm really excited because this is magically, as sometimes podcast situations materialize, come into this beautiful circle where Fear Street 1994, I had a long in-depth chat with Azora Barber-Brown, uh, yeah. a friend and collaborator of the Final Girls. And we're going to chat about Fear Street 1978. And then I'm going to have both of you combined yeah. for the next episode <laughs> for the finale of the trilogy. <laughs> that it just feels so perfect. And I know by the time we get to the third film, we're all going to have so much to say. And it's going to be brilliant to have like two other people to bounce off I'm really good really good for that I'm really yeah. I'm really excited <laughs> to hear you both talk about all your thoughts about the trilogy and the last yeah. film in particular but in today's episode we're gonna focus exclusively on Fear Street 1978 so we yeah. covered 1994 beforehand mm -hmm. and just for anyone listening who has just watched the, the second film in the Fear Street trilogy, we will be spoiling the entirety of this film pretty much from, mm -hmm. well, like now. <laughs> but rest assured, we won't um, hint or spoil or say anything about what might come in the third and final film. We will do that in the full episode that will come yeah. the day after it's released next week. Um, so before we, we dig into 1978, um, mm -hmm. Alison, what were your expectations of the Fear Street trilogy in general? I was 
I was really looking forward to it. And I know, like, I feel like you're supposed to say that, like, oh, my God, I was so excited. But it's very much um, my kind of horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've probably talked about this kind of thing before, but I like um, really entertaining, quite commercial horror, lots of plot, lots of pacing. And I kind of like my horror to be fun. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to come away feeling like I need to go take antidepressants. Like I want to come away, I, I, I want to come away feeling like yes, that was amazing. And um, so knowing what like the brand of Fear Street is about, mm. and knowing the director, I was like, yes, this is great. And then when I find out it was the nineties, the seventies, and then the sixteen hundreds with witches, I was, I was genuinely genuinely really excited for all three films because they all kind of push my buttons in different kinds of ways Mm. I think I think it's really funny that you mentioned kind of you know it not being a horror that makes you want to take antidepressants which is exactly (laughs) one of my two favorite kinds of horrors but (laughs) also Lee Janiak's kind of previous film Honeymoon is very much not you know a, a depressive horror but no. a kind of existential cosmic type of horror yeah but what in in brief in summary so mm. we can fully get into the 70s one but what did you make of the of fear street 1994 um i i really enjoyed it it was the one if i'm honest i was most looking forward to mm-hmm. so i feel like with the 70s ones we already had like a return to 70s horror many times over the last 50 years and then even with witch films set in the 1600s we've had quite a few of those but what I haven't seen before is the first point of a real return to what 1990s horror Mm -hmm. was for me And I suspect, well, I know I'm a bit older than you. So I remember like the full range of the 90s decade, like as a kind of a younger teen, then as an older teen. Mm -hmm. And I was genuinely excited to see for the first time what the filmmakers working now thought the 90s was like. Mm -hmm. And um, in the opening sequence with Maya Hawk mm. and Nine Inch Nails, I did actually squeal. Ah! I was like, ah, this is going to be so good. And then so much of it is around the idea of the mall, which mm-hmm. I'm very into in horror films, like the 80s film Chopping Mall is one of my favorite films. So <laughs> um, I, I found it exactly what I'd hoped, which is a riot. Mm. And because it's made now and not in the 90s, it's got, um, it feels kind of much flash, flashier, much slicker, like a welcomely diverse cast. So I feel like it's very much a contemporary take on the 90s, but that's fine. I'm, I, was, I was fully like, locked in and ready to go. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting because uh, I, I feel like it is. And it's yeah. now, I think, the time and perhaps Fear Street. I don't think Fear Street is the first one. It might be mm-hmm. the first slasher that's yeah. actively trying to emulate the visual and the thematic beats of yeah. 90s horror films but mm. there has been and there are films that are trying to you know combine the sensibilities of contemporary culture with yeah. the visual style and the themes and the the aesthetics but yeah. not not just aesthetics for nostalgia's sake not just mm. sort of winks and nods and <laughs> walkmans for the sake of oh yeah hello oh. fellow kids yeah but but more kind of you know trying to find what made those films so special and what made them work and i don't know if this is maybe the sign of um another kind of more i don't know more proper look back at 90s horror because i don't know if you feel this way but i feel like the 90s were always up until maybe a few years ago Mm. And I say this from experience of someone who continuously kind of pitched 90s movies as Mm. contemporary modern classics when I was programming (laughs) for the BFI and was continuously told, no, those movies are shit or those movies are too recent. And then I swear to you, within like a few months, there was a switch and suddenly it was like, oh, wait, no, this is like the best decade for cinema ever. Yeah. 
yeah I, I know exactly what you mean I feel like there's been a massive change in the narrative mm. so until relatively recently I genuinely feel like everyone believes that the 90s is the decade that horror forgot yes they do don't they yeah that's Why? like being the prevailing attitude mm-hmm. so it was kind of like so we had a big horror surge in the late 70s that went through to the early 80s and then that kind of died and in the mid 80s we kind of started up with supernatural slashes and we rode that for a bit and then it all kind of died and it was dead in the 90s and it stayed dead until scream but apart from that then it really stayed dead until the end of the 90s with the ring and then we start asian horror and that's like the narrative Hmm. that exists so Mm -hmm you're allowed to scream and you're allowed to acknowledge Blair Witch and the ring right at the end of the 90s and mm-hmm. that's it and that is just not the case for me obviously there is a nostalgia element mm-hmm. I grew up in the 90s a lot of these films a lot of the fashion mm-hmm. a lot of the hair a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of very flat greasy hair which I remember living in the 90s um I hold these films close. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really enjoy doing in my work is like digging through the 90s and saying, hey, I mean, I know you're a fan of this film as well, but saying like, hey, we all need to watch Mirror Mirror. We all need to watch Poison Ivy. We really need to go back and reassess these films. And it's so nice to feel like we're finally at a point where everybody else realizes the 90s was lots of fun. Listen, don't even get me started on Poison Ivy. I <laughs> I have bored so many people with my love for Poison Ivy. <laughs> me too. I love it. I'm going to write about it in my new book and I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could write a whole book about Poison Ivy if any yes, commissioning editors are listening. I am available and may or may not already have started. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, think, I think they may not realise it, but we need a BFI film classics on Poison Ivy. The BFI might not realise this, but we definitely need it. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't go on the record telling you how long I've been pitching this. <laughs> Um, but it's really interesting that you mentioned kind of the the narrative that exists about yeah. sort of the the key points, the important points of horror history, and kind of moving into Fear Street 1978. Obviously, mm-hmm. this takes part in what is collectively and understood to be the golden age of horror films, mm-hmm. specifically yes. golden age of slasher films. Yeah. So. We talked a little bit about 90s nostalgia. Zora and I talk mm-hmm. a lot about it in the first episode of this miniseries. But yeah, how do you think Fear Street 1978 handles that with a much larger distance and without mm. kind of having to tread new ground? They are kind of treading much more familiar ground by yes. going back into essentially all the things that everybody loves about 1970s horror films (laughs) you're right and I think it does some of these things really well the first thing that I think Fair Street 78 does well is the um the aesthetics Mm -hmm. so they've they've absolutely nailed the kind of the look of the 70s and 80s um sleepaway camp Friday the 13th um summer camp slasher film so mm-hmm. everything is kind of yellowy and like bleached out during the day and we've got the log cabins and we've got the lake and it feels very summer camp in the actual setting and the kind of the colors mm. that it's letting so i think they homage that really well And kind of starting with, you know, in 1994, there's such a distinct neon-soaked look for the film. And then it's much more summery and breezy in the second one. And the third one is like radically different stylistically, um, not just because of the of the time it's set in. So can you talk a little bit about the visual building of the world and like how did you collaborate with your cinematographer, um, Caleb? Yeah, Caleb and I spent a lot of time, obviously, in prep discussing like how do we keep these movies feeling fresh and exciting and and being true to kind of each of the time periods. And so for the 90s, we definitely looked to kind of those those movies of the mid-90s. So Scream, 
I Know What You Did Last Summer. Those were all like kind of tonal influences as well. But we looked at the filmmaking mm-hmm. too, which tended to be like more traditionally kind of studio filmmaking. So a lot more of like dolly track and kind of locked off frames, things like that. Um, and and then, you know, Caleb and I, like we kind of created this, we tried to like lift it up a little. We like we wanted to be colorful. We wanted to be in these like cool color spaces in the grocery store, in the mall. And so we kind of bumped it up and stylized it a little bit. And then with the 70s, it was the same thing. We always kind of looked back at those movies that were the, the touchstones of that era. And then we tried to find ways that we could kind of like, yeah, take it up a notch. So it was fun in the 70s to kind of live in the sun for a while and to have it be very colorful. <laughs> we talked about creating a look. Uh, my colorist Skip is also amazing. We put a lot of like grain mm-hmm. into it to make it feel like a little more like gritty and immediate with the 70s feel. Um, and then the 1600s to me was, was interesting. Um, I, I wanted the movie to feel immediate and like kind of mm-hmm. not have any distance between the audience and and like what you might have when you're watching a period piece like more traditionally and so we talked a lot about just like living in a full handheld world for for camera and always being really tied to like character POV to try to make it mm-hmm. feel like modern and kind of connected um, so that was the that was the ex- and then the palette obviously of the 1600s we wanted to live in a very organic um, kind of neutral territory so when we did have a pop of orange from a flame or blood, it really felt like, mm-hmm. oh shit, <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And what do you make about the actual type of horror? Like, the, mm. you know, obviously this goes a little bit deeper into the supernatural, but it yeah. also, before we have all of that, goes deep into these familiar slasher tropes of yeah. the creepy nurse lady, the, <laughs> the idea of some sort of curse, um, all the dynamics between the campers and stuff. What did you make of, of how it actually replicated those? I think there are elements that are replicated and I think there are elements that are very different mm-hmm. and reflect how storytelling is done now. Um, so the things that I think are really similar is that they understand that in um, summer camp horror films, a lot of the initial horror comes from dynamics between characters. Mm -hmm. And it's not about the killer, whether they're supernatural or real. It's usually about bullying. And it's usually about the pecking order. And I think the Fear Street film really gets that. So the kind of bullying that um, Ziggy endures from Sheila, Mm -hmm. it really put me in mind of Sleepaway Camp Mm -hmm. and the way that like Angela's main crime in Sleepaway Camp, to my mind, Mm -hmm. is that she's really quiet. And like the camp counsellor and the girl who bullies her cannot cope with the fact that she doesn't speak unless she has something important to say. And so the the bullying and the kind of the idea of being away at summer camp, away from your parents, the people in charge of camp counsellors who were barely older than you, it's pretty much lawless. Mm. So it's an absolute hotbed for bullying. So I think they're really good at capturing the dynamics of what it's like to be a teenager away from home and trying to work out your place in the world. And there's the added kind of dynamic that exists between Sunnyvale and Shadyside as well. That's yeah. a play here. What yeah. did you make of the way that that's expanded on in this in this film? I felt it was fairly binary. It was like, you know, we, we root for the underdogs. Certainly, like, the British tradition is to root for the underdogs. That's what <laughs> we're very much into. And I felt that was fine. It was kind of... Um, you know, Sunny Vale is the wealthy, glossy, the entitled. Everyone's more beautiful. You know, the shady side are the ones that we really spend the time with and that we want to overcome the obstacles. So they're it the was punks. fine. Yeah, well, they're the punks. Alice is like one of the best characters in there. They're the punks. They're the ones really having fun. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that we're most interested in. But I thought that dynamic was all right. I, I think they could have gone a bit deeper, especially mm-hmm. across the three films and given the amount of screen time we've got. It, it did what it needed to do. I, I felt it was fairly simple. Um, so there was that. Um, but in terms of the actual plotting and the killing... 
in mm. 78 i think it's quite different i'd like to see what you think actually but i think it's quite different to what we get in old school slasher films Ooh, i'm excited to hear more <laughs> okay so i watch quite a lot of the old school slasher films i only came to them quite late though like i was already doing horror but like when I was a kid, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. everyone was watching like supernatural slasher films, like the later 80s ones at slumber parties. Everyone was watching Nightmare on Elm Street. So the old school kind of um, things like Halloween, um, Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. Terror Train, mm-hmm. My Bloody Valentine, nobody was watching them. Mm-hmm. And I only came to them as an adult. And I realized that what I really liked about them, aside from the fact they didn't massively scare me and they mm. were lots of fun, is that they have that real who done it mm-hmm. element. And I'm very big on detective stories. Like when I'm tired and I'm finding the world hard, I do go back to Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. I do love a who done it, done it. I find it very soothing. And those early slashes are very much in that mold. Mm -hmm. And I don't particularly think the Fear Street film 78 really cares about that. I don't really think it's a whodunit. It's kind of, it feels fairly arbitrary that um, Tommy is gonna be the axe-wielding murderer. It's like, oh, it's Tommy. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not the point who did it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is where the kills come. In 78. So I rewatched it for the podcast and I made a list of when and where the kills come. Because what, what's been nagging at me about what's the same and what's different to 70s mm-hmm. slashers and 80s is, um, is the pacing of where deaths occur mm-hmm. and like why deaths occur. So in old school slasher films, to my mind, like killings happen pretty quick. Like we crack on with killings from the beginning and the idea is kind of the amount of killings surges and like everybody's got rid of until we're left with the final girl. And then the the last of the film is really about her trying to battle in the killer. Whereas if we take out the prologue and the bit back in 94 at the end of 78, mm-hmm. we don't get any killings to like halfway through. So like Tommy obviously goes on a rampage, but he Mm. doesn't start his rampage until like 45 minutes into the film. Yes. And then it's kind of a kill every 10 minutes, which again, it feels quite slow. We get into the middle of the film Mm -hmm. and he takes out like six people in the space of five minutes, but then it it kind of goes quiet again. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the kills are much later on in this film. And even though the kills are like enjoyed, Mm-hmm. and made a point of i feel like fair street 78 is looking for much more kind of complex storytelling and complex world building and complex character arcs and so it spends its time setting all of those up before it really goes mad so it feels different in terms of pacing and structure to your kind of classic slashers mm-hmm. which kind of it's like Oh, she's got a hair in pigtails and she has sex, so she will die. I feel like Fear Street's more into giving us much more nuanced character acts, but it means the pacing's different. Mm. So these are my very long-winded thoughts around these things. I don't know what you feel. <laughs> I'm I'm so intrigued by hearing you explain those because it does make sense and I don't yeah. disagree. But oh, I'm gonna good. add something onto mm-hmm. onto your whodunit point. Yeah. Um so one of the things that I found very interesting about and kind of subverted my own expectations of the film Mm. with 94 was the whole the whodunit thing is not the point yes you know we get the reveal of the killer pretty much in the first five minutes of the first one so you're like okay so where now where do we go from here yeah and here with tommy it's kind of the same point the fact that tommy is the killer kind of doesn't really matter yeah and the whole point the whodunit element i do disagree with you here is just slightly different in this film Mm. because instead of trying to figure out who the killer is Mm. which is very much i think a 90s thing in many ways but even when i think of them even when i think of them even the most perfect slasher film which is halloween in my opinion um (laughs) it's kind of the first fully formed 
classic of the genre yeah. the one that kind of incorporated all the influences and set so many tropes um yeah. on their way we still gotta know who michael myers is we know his name mm. we kind of know what little backstory he gets from the very yeah. first scenes in the film so the whodunit is also not the point the point is kind yeah. of survival it's the point is the the killing and surviving the killings whether mm. it's in the 90s the whodunit like who is this killer yeah which again harkens back to like early on and whatever but here the whodunit applies to the witch so it's yeah. much more about the supernatural whodunit like who's actually doing the murders doesn't really yeah. matter that much it's an inconvenience it's the <laughs> obstacle <laughs> it's a very bad inconvenience but you know what i mean yeah plot yeah, wise yeah. it's the obstacle that the characters need to sort of circumvent but yeah even if they behead tommy he's still gonna get yeah. up Exactly. It's, it's got this kind of like video game style pacing where like they get over one thing and then yeah. it comes back, but it comes back like with three arms and yeah. with like a bigger, a bigger axe or there's an additional <laughs> couple of killers. Yeah. So they just keep yeah. layering thing and thing and thing onto it, which I think is so, it's kind of like taking both things from the 70s mm. slashers. A yeah. certain type of storytelling from the 90s. And also this like over the top blobbiness and video gaminess that yeah. 80s franchise slashers. And I'm thinking franchise slashers specifically because you know mm. how in the biggest franchises, uh, in the biggest horror franchises, around like the third or fourth or fifth entry point, they're like, yeah. shall we put in some like druids? Can we like... <laughs> we need it? to go supernatural now. It's time to... <laughs> <laughs> let's put some druids some witches like some runes yeah, yeah. in there i don't know yeah. what else to do like like just let's pile yeah. shit on because a single killer is no longer scary yeah i know i think you're right and i think i can actually add to that as well just in kind of the big um the big mm -hmm. cauldron of all the different horror things <laughs> so you know we've got all of that that you've just talked about mm. and then you know how in the 2000s we started getting really glossy slashes um yeah. but they were really um really violent like i rewatched house of wax recently mm -hmm. and i was like wow that is nasty mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm thinking here about things like final destination which oh, like yeah. with every iteration the killings just get more and more over the top mm -hmm. and more and more crazy and that kind of accumulation that like cumulative layering of the most over-the-top horror is something that is definitely going on in the 2000s as well mm -hmm. so it's like cherry picking from all the different decades isn't totally. it totally and i think to be honest i quite like that because i think yeah. that's that's that makes sense because it would be borderline impossible or quite i think perhaps disingenuous to try to only emulate a particular mm -hmm. style of storytelling when you have so much more cultural context and so much more cultural baggage and story mm. baggage that inevitably will bleed into your your style. Yes. But there is something that you mentioned as well that I wanted to expand upon um, mm. and expand upon with you, which is kind of the Se Fear Street 78 is more concerned with expanding the mythology and the character yeah. arcs. And I think re-watching this film last night, the the themes that are sort of presented a, a mm. bit in the first one are so much more expanded in this one and it's this yes. idea of like curses but curses really to cover up the theme of generational trauma and like intergenerational mm. trauma and ziggy in particular just being hounded and bullied relentlessly yeah. for frankly no apparent reason aside from the None. fact that she's from shady side yeah and her sister, Cindy, like so deliberately trying to model herself, like try to mm. put herself into the Sunnyvale camp, being like, mm. no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that. I can, I can break this. I can break this. And it's this yeah. idea of just this, this slightly teenagey, potentially very basic um, dynamic between the two towns actually yeah. becomes this like very intense burden that some of them carry where they're like how can i break away from all this shit when yeah. it just keeps getting piled on top of me for absolutely no reason whatsoever so this like idea of them trying to break away from this very narrow path that has been set for them by what yeah 
by this curse. Yeah. I, I to I totally get that. And I think it what it's what makes the character of um Cindy mm. for me like that bit um harder to enjoy mm. so the way I feel like some of the characters deal with this kind of generational trauma so Ziggy mm-hmm. and also Alice I think they're quite nihilistic in the end mm-hmm. they're like you know awful shit has happened awful shit is happening now what can you do this this world is full of awful shit and um cindy's like no no i will overcome this like you say i will emulate those that i want to be in order to escape but what that means is that she comes across not only as kind of your old school stereotype like uptight person Mm -hmm. that um she's she's presenting this character even to her sister Mm -hmm. that like is really like not much fun like Ziggy's so much wilder Ziggy's kind of your don't care girl like everything's dreadful but I'm gonna just do what I want right now in the moment mm-hmm. and Cindy's just plotting until it gets to the point where Ziggy turns around and says like for once in your life you can just stop pretending mm. and it will and I think that makes Cindy a much more difficult character to play not just because she's layered but because what she presents to the world is like, ugh, really? No one likes a goody two shoes. <laughs> like, no one likes the girl who's like explicitly rejecting her world and being a goody who doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, all that kind of final girl stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's the virgin, all of this, but she's really not any fun. So I think it makes it much harder on her character as well. She's the only one who is actively trying to escape the trauma like mm. Alice and Siggy like whatever whatever I don't care I'm just gonna do what I'm doing now I'm not making any plans but Cindy wants to escape but it does make her less less fun and I I'm, think I'm gonna pick up on the final girl shit in a little bit but I wanted to yeah. to ask about your thoughts on Ziggy as a character yes. and and the two versions of Ziggy that we see you know we meet her mm. as a as an adult hermit basically yeah yeah and then we we go back to to her as a teenager and then we kind of finish everything with her back as this yeah hyper traumatized adult yes well I loved um I love Ziggy as an adult because she's played by Gillian Jacobs mm-hmm. um who I have to admit now I know this is weird I have never watched Community so everyone's like How? I don't get I don't like I don't even know why (laughs) like there's no reason it it, just never happened and I've never watched her in that but what I have watched her in is love Mm -hmm. and I adore Mickey like I have the biggest crush on Mickey of all time and so when I started watching Fear Street 78 I was like Mickey from love is in this (laughs) oh my god like so I love Gillian Jacobs it's important Mm -hmm. to get that out of the way up front let me tell you you're in for a wild ride when you see her as Britta because it is night and day Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, I am going to watch Community. I promise. I promise I will. Um, but I, I love the fact that it's Gillian Jacobs. Mm-hmm. So like Ziggy could be doing anything when she's an adult. And I would be like, yes, I'm there. I'm watching this. I'm watching all of it. What I like in terms of the arc for her in the second film is that she is this traumatized adult. But when Dina and her brother come along, she begins to see a way out because mm-hmm. she's obviously stuck like in her mm-hmm. world as it is in the 90s she's completely stuck mm-hmm. she can't get out her world is ruled by clocks and locks <laughs> yeah <know>? like, <laughs> clocks and locks and dogs and um like there's nothing else going on for her so i feel it's satisfying that dina opens up an opportunity for her life to change and then in terms of ziggy in the 70s version i i just she she's the one that i would be i feel <laughs> like just in terms of oh you know to sheila like oh fuck off sheila <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> she might be being strung up by a wrist on the witch's tree but mm. i would still rather be ziggy than sheila any day oh 100 also yeah. obviously she loves david bowie so much that yes. she calls herself ziggy the love for exactly. bowie throughout this whole film is spoke to my soul yeah me um, too I really it really did I really, there, I really enjoyed that <laughs> there is something that you mentioned that 
that made me think that the teenage Ziggy also has that moment where she starts off, you know, not traumatized yet, but kind of very yeah. hardened, very fuck you energy to everything yeah. and everyone. Yeah. And she sees a potential way out and she starts to soften when yeah. with Nick Good. Which yeah. is very much the same thing that kind of we see happen with adult Ziggy with um with yeah. Dina and Josh. So what do you make of the way that she, you know, not just the way that she reacts to her bullies and, and like how she moves around the world as a teenager? Yeah, it's um I see her with Nick. I'm I'm thinking of when they're in like the science and nature hut. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for us to see that side of her mm. as well and to see that softness and that in the same way that Cindy has this rather unpalatable good girl presentation to the world Mm -hmm. that we get beyond Ziggy's kind of fuck (laughs) y'all and we start to see something a bit softer Mm -hmm. and a bit gentler and it just gives us that kind of moment of vulnerability that we need um with Nick Good Mm -hmm. as well which is interesting (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about Nick Good (laughs) yeah what are your thoughts on Nick Good Anna (laughs) I mean Ah, my thoughts on the good. Um, you know, thinking that. Okay, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna. Be, you know, there's a reason I turned this question on you. It's I so know. you had to answer. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to make this not rude. Okay, so Nick Good can go fuck himself. Um, uh, oh, good, good, <laughs> but correct. Also, <laughs> but also, there is something very like pick me ish about Nick in this film about this whole mm. thing about sort of ingraining himself into the trust of the weird kid from the yeah. weird girl from shady side about sort of saving her from the bullies about yeah. spending so much time to prove like to gain her trust and yeah. The first time I watched this, I was like, oh, yes, teenage love. They love Stephen King. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Yay, I mean, them. At, the, <laughs> at, at the same time, I was like, Stephen King is the biggest author in the world. And he definitely yeah. was at this point. So like liking Carrie does not make you special. It's like no. li- liking Radiohead does not make you unique. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but, definitely. Um, but that that whole kind of um, vibe between them was very sweet. And then when I watched that film, I was like, you little shit (laughs) yes cowardly little shit you want to be you want to have the balls that ziggy has but you don't you don't and you just want to ingrain yourself close enough to her to have a little bit of that fun have a little bit of that mischief but without ever actually risking anything without ever actually committing yourself truly to who you are or who you want to be yeah and I think it's like a different type of um coward coward um it's a different type of of cowardice yeah because whether Cindy like is sacrificing so much to try to be more Sunnyvale and she does become annoying and she's you know betrays (laughs) betrays her sister emotionally in so many ways betrays herself but Nick is like the golden boy. Yeah. And he's trying to pretend that he's not, but he knows that he is. He's like, okay, this is a weird tangent, but st- stick with me here. He's like the girl that Jarvis Cocker is singing about in Common People. Oh, I was thinking about Common People. As you were talking, I was like, shall I reference Common People? And then I was like, oh, I don't know. With Common People, I want to sleep with Common People like you. Because it's about he's the rich boy slumming it, isn't it? Yeah, and you call your dad and he'll stop it all for you. Exactly. You know, he's apart like, from Nick's dad's dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apart from that, but like <laughs> metaphorically speaking, it's the same vibe. Yeah. It's like I want yeah. to get close enough to the weird yeah. girl because I yeah. I feel like the weird boy as well. So you know we're connected, but yeah. I don't actually have the balls to be the weird kid of Sunnyvale. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna step back. I'm gonna betray you. I'm gonna yeah. just stick in my like predestined lane of Nick goodness. Yeah. And fuck Nick. He's a coward. Yeah. 
and when he says to Ziggy, you know, oh, it's it's hard being the anointed one. And like, oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> boo-hoo, well, Nick. Well, <laughs> do something different with your crown. Do something different with your yeah. crown, Nick. If you think it's so hard, then do something different. Maybe, like, you know, don't let your friends literally, physically abuse and bully this random girl for no reason whatsoever. Exactly. And uh, you know, you've mentioned rewatching it. Mm-hmm. And I think this one particularly works well for rewatching because mm-hmm. you watch it the first time and you're like, you're watching it and you're like, okay, good, good, slasher, slasher, fun, fun. And then, you know, occasionally I'm like, they're underground and I'm like, are they in a cave? I'm not sure what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then you rewatch it. And because it's so loaded with the character and the story arcs, yeah. it's just so much more satisfying. And the more you know about Nick Good, like you say you read him differently Mm -hmm. on a rewatch and like when we get just what you're saying which is you know um uh, it's hard being it's hard being the good boy it's hard being the son and I want to be like you but it's you know different sides of the tracks west side story and all that Mm -hmm. but then we get to that final moment and when um Nick tells the police like what happened Tommy Slater went crazy mm-hmm. you know you know you're like oh no you're not good you're a little you're a little weakling mm-hmm. you know you just betrayed Ziggy with everything and that kind of multiple layered betrayal that's yep. going on all the way through the film I didn't really pick up on until I rewatched it and mm-hmm. I realised what kind of person Nick was. So it was same. much more satisfying on the second watch. Same, absolutely the same. I think like I've rewatched 94, rewatched 78 yeah. last night and honestly I think this they both benefit rewatching, but this one in particular mm. because yeah. then also adult Hermit Ziggy makes so much yeah. sense because it's yeah. not just, you know, having lived through and survived this massacre and lost her sister but it's also she was finding another anchor like there was someone who could have helped her who knew who saw what was happening and he deliberately had nothing to lose and he still betrayed her yeah he totally he rejected the truth and her truth and was not going back on that in order to serve his own interests so he's a bad man so in summary (laughs) fuck the good yep (laughs) Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> but we, you mentioned a little bit before, and I want to kind of start talking about the third yeah. um, kind of arc of the film, and mm. specifically about the final girl and what it does yeah. with that trope. Because as you mentioned before, Cindy has all the markers of the final girl a little bit. Yeah. She's sort of, sort of like a goody two shoes. She's, yeah. you know, not having sex. She's very much like very into pleasing people. She won't take drugs. She That's won't take drugs. Yeah. Very important. <laughs> but then she dies. Yeah. And again, on the first watch, you're like, because you assume Cindy is surviving mm-hmm. and you assume Cindy is the narrator mm-hmm. of this story. And you're like, wow, she's really taking some axes in the chest. You know, (laughs) like, it's going to take a lot for her to come back from this. And you're like, oh, and she's axed in the chest again. Oh, and again, and again. And then you're like, I think she's died. And you're like, oh, Cindy isn't the final girl. Mm -hmm. And then, like, mind is blown. And it's... I find, again, re-watching it and knowing the mm-hmm. ending and knowing the kind of rug pull about who the adult is that's telling the story, I I found it really interesting to go back and watch what the filmmakers have done mm. to play with the conventions of horror film and kind of mess it up a bit. Mm-hmm. Because Cindy is your classic final girl. Mm-hmm. She's virginial, goody two-shoes. She's also active. Mm-hmm. She's the one who's like initially determined to prove that Nurse Lane just went a bit crazy Mm -hmm. and there is no possession and there is no witch and Mm -hmm. supernatural doesn't exist. And it's really Cindy who drives things through. Ziggy is just living the life as best she can. Mm -hmm. That's what Ziggy's doing. Ziggy is just trying to get through the day. Mm -hmm. She is not interested in proving anything. And it's always her that pushes it. But then even towards the back end of the film, which you would expect it to start tipping towards Ziggy, knowing what you know, It still doesn't. And she's just told what to do by Nick. And Nick's like, right, what we're going to do? That bell's going to ring. We're going to get that bus. We're going to get you out of here. And she's like, well, okay. Mm. So 
Ziggy still doesn't push the story at any point. So for Ziggy to be the last girl standing or laying down covered in blood and stab wounds... <laughs> to be specific. Is, to be specific <laughs> is, um, is an interesting twist on mm. what we expect. And I think it really plays into what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. which is like taking elements of the different decades and cycles... But then saying, well, I'm going to take some of them, but I'm not taking all of them. And I know you know about the final girl, but we're not really going to do that here. Because the final girl, there is a final girl, but we're not playing by the rules of the what the final girl has to do. I will admit, like a I like the dumb bitch that I am, Alison. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I 100% <laughs> thought that Ziggy was the the final girl. Like, I kind of already got that she was the narrator but I didn't see until the rewatch all the very great kind of messing around with the audience that the film does yeah like with yeah. the with the initial her initial is c berman so we yeah. think cindy obviously not exactly. ziggy her name is revealed and to be christine i thought it was cindy i was like what what this isn't cindy telling the story like that i was i was fully taken by that they got me well oh. despite my despite my ability to read horror films <laughs> as my job <laughs> i i genuinely cannot tell you why i i because i i was like surprised but i did not yeah. at any point think that um jillian jacobs was playing an adult cindy but then when i was yeah. watching it was like oh what you're doing here is so smart even the hair yeah. the exactly. tone of her voice like you know yeah. ziggy obviously has like bright red hair as a teenager yeah, yeah. cindy's a brunette so yeah. everything is pointing towards cindy and then yeah. it pulls the rug from under us and yeah. even so the thing i love and kind of going back to our initial conversation of how it melds different storytelling trends or character mm-hmm. trends from different eras of horror that sort of looking back at a traumatized survivor looking back at the final girl after the final shot is both a very 90s and a very 2000s thing to do and i'm thinking (laughs) specifically of scream 2 which i think is great and did something about kind of looking at yeah what happens to sydney after she went through that whole shit like how does she live her life after going through that in an everyday thing which i think is really really fascinating and i love that film yeah. And then obviously I'm thinking of the the latest Halloween um reboot remake sequel mm. something where we see Laurie Strode kind of in the alternate timeline where she does survive. Um yeah. <laughs> we see we see Laurie Strode as an as an adult woman dealing with decades of processing yeah. and and the legacy of that massive trauma that was our entertainment in the 70s. Yeah, and that's exactly what happens with the Alien franchise as well. Mm. And all the different spin-offs. This is all about Ripley and like how does she survive what she's gone through. Yes. Absolutely. And I guess we need to talk about well, the big finale. The big finale in the yeah. cave, the finale on the grass. <laughs> the big blob, the blob of the, the witch blob. <laughs> they don't yes, think- what do you call that? I've just been I've been making notes when I've watched them and yeah. I write pulsating mass. But oh, I, I wrote <laughs> Let me let me see what I wrote. I wrote the pulsating gross heart. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That feels better. I'm glad we were both thinking pulsating, but I never yeah. really found the right noun. You know. <laughs> my when I first watched this film, my first note that I made was uh the shit monster from Dogma. <laughs> Oh dear lord. <laughs> but this has a lot of pulsating going on. It's much yeah. better special effects. More throbbing. Throbbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's talk about this kind of finale in the cave, which mm. is that kind of whodunit element of Yeah. Let's figure out how to break this curse. How do we how do we save Tommy? We need to save yeah. the killer and survive and we need to figure out what's going on with this witch stuff. There's a little map there's a yeah. cave i love the There's map so the many map. things yeah i'm really into the map i mean this is partly like my offshoot of loving fantasy fiction you know i grew up reading lord of the rings mm-hmm. any book that opens with a map makes me very happy and it's 
it feels again it feels kind of strange things mm-hmm. seeing kind of like maps of the land I, i'm very goonies. big on the map yeah oh my god so goonies the fact that like they go underground mm-hmm. and all these caves and tunnels exist be underneath normal space mm-hmm. incredibly goonies so i was very very into the maps and again re-watching it which is where you appreciate the real richness mm. is how you know across the films how these same locations are laid upon each other again and again and again and how again without spoilers how even just distinct actions in distinct spaces in the second film are a cue for someone doing that in the third film and how all these spaces kind of historically layer on top of each other and the horror occurs again and again. But on the first viewing, you don't notice most of these things. Mm-hmm. You're just thinking, a lot of the time thinking, wow, this is packed. I'm just about, I'm just about keeping on top of everything that's going on here. <laughs> and then you, you re-watch it and you see all the little moments of mirroring, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. And what did you make of, um, I mean, we talked briefly about the the violence, but Mm. it does go for some gory moments. What did you make of the actual, (laughs) like, horror bits of it? Um, Interesting, because a a few kind of conflicting thoughts. Mm -hmm. So the glossiness that I've talked about Mm -hmm. and the slickness, I think can't help but undercut some of the violence that I would expect from some of the older slasher films. There's something about more the lower budget, more exploitation cinema that is just plain nastier. And I think the sheen of making films today undercuts some of the nastiness of it. But the nastiness is not the same as violence. And I do Mm -hmm. think there's quite a lot of violence in these films. And I was surprised at some of the choices. In this film, there was one surprise. And again, the next film, which we're not talking about, Mm -hmm. there was one surprise, which I was like, wow, I really didn't expect that kill. That was super nasty. So in this film, the one that made me go, oh, was when the poor boy, who's the shady side jailer, Mm -hmm. who has to stay in charge, the cute little boy with glasses on. Yeah. And then Tommy comes along and just axes him to death. And I'm like, clearly this boy is about 11 years old. Like, he should be off limits for mm. a slasher film. There's, there's rules that we expect in slasher films. And what I found interesting about this film is that it doesn't matter if you're like 10, you're still going to get axed to death. <laughs> Which I was quite surprised at, quite that is, frankly. That is a soundbite, uh, not a soundbite <laughs> I expected, but I do thank you for it nonetheless. Well, again, it's the same when, um, well, um, Tommy's on his rampage. There are three captured shady side kids who are so young. They're mm-hmm. so young. And the um, Sunnyvale jailer goes off to see what Nick's shouting about. Mm-hmm. And then Tommy turns up. And they've all gone. I mean, thankfully, it's done in the dark and off screen because mm. I don't need to see that. But what they really like to do in the film is really play up those sound effects. So <laughs> we're, we're in no doubt that these children are being axed to death. <laughs> so there is a lot of violence, but I feel it's done in a very slick way. Mm. And I think it's actually done quite carefully. I completely see your point and I get it. And I think it is something that cannot be... It's it's actually I think quite hard to do nasty violence in horror. Yeah, I know that kind yeah. of non horror fans have a lot of you know pre- prejudices or, or kind of preconceived no- notions of how all violence on screen is inherently nasty, but I think mm-hmm. there's a real difference, and you can yeah. you kind of weirdly and again stay with me here in this comparison okay you know okay. how you know how they say that it's incredible it's impossible to define pornography and even people literally have been in in high court saying mm-hmm. well i don't know how to define it but i know it when i see it i know it when i see it yeah so i think it's the same with nastiness and horror there are yeah. there are kind of certain unspoken societal rules like the you know hurting children for instance yeah. that yeah. that once certain things are crossed you're like 
oh no 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 oh that's that's nasty that feels wrong even as yeah. fiction and i'm not yeah. saying i felt that with 78 at all because of the slick yeah. production because of the exactly the visual flourishes because of quite deliberate framing of the violent scenes but yeah. there are certain horror films that i think it's trying to wink at that do yes. have that sort of vibe of oh you oh that's actually that's grim i actually don't want to see that i really don't yeah. want to see that I know exactly what you mean. And I think there's quite a good distinction between like the campers. So the campers mm. are younger and they tend to be massacred off screen yeah. as is appropriate. Mm-hmm. But then like the older camp counsellors are all fucking and smoking drugs. Mm-hmm. They're going to get an axe in the face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's quite important. Which is a very, which is a very 70s thing as well, right? Yeah, it's like it's if, so, you're, so. if you're being excessive in any way and, you know, excessive for teenagers is not excess in general. But, you know, no. they're having sex, they're smoking they're smoking they're have they're taking drugs they're having yeah. fun and yes you will you will get murdered that is a recipe yeah. for murder thank you very much yeah joan is gonna get an axe in the face oh, like 100%. that's yeah that's important that that happens i mean the fact that we meet alice who i also love like yes having <laughs> like part of my french getting absolutely railed to the tune of yeah. joan jed Ken- and then smoking weed immediately after yeah. recipe for death my friend she is like you you meet alice and you're like will you be my best friend um, <laughs> for the 30 like, minutes you've got to live yeah yeah it's unfortunate that you're 100 percent gonna die yeah but we would be best friends so. <laughs> um so allison just to to wrap up our conversation about this which has been hugely enjoyable oh thank you what did you make of the ending and i mean not the ending of the camp nightwing part of the yeah. film but the actual bookend and the the cliffhanger on which we're left i i'm i'm pleased by it um what i find what i haven't quite worked through and i'm hoping we might pick up on the final podcast mm-hmm. is the idea of kind of the narrative and like the framing narrative so what you're asking about here is when we go back to 94 isn't mm-hmm. it and how that sets up for the final film. And I am I feel like with these three films, again, I won't be spoiling them, mm. but I feel like what I enjoy reading them as is, right, is like a long six-hour piece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. So even though officially we have three standalone films, the book ending, beginning and end of each film, and particularly 78, it makes me feel like I'm watching a really long form fiction. Mm-hmm. So I like the ending. The 90s section is my favorite. Mm-hmm. So I'm always delighted when it goes back to the 90s. In the 90s section, the mall is my favorite. Mm-hmm. So I'm very pleased that they go to the mall and to the hanging tree and they find the hand. But in terms of we get the official kind of old school film ending with the end of the 78 and then we get the teaser Mm -hmm. for what's coming up and it makes you obviously it makes you want to keep watching and it makes you go oh my god she's going to the 1600s oh my god the patriarchy we're going in for a whole different kind of horror here so but in terms of like narrative thrust Mm -hmm. i'm i it doesn't obviously they don't feel like traditional horror films is what I think I'm getting to because they're not standalone even within a series they're so much richer and fuller by watching all of them and repeatedly rewatching. Mm-hmm. so this this is my burbling long-winded way of saying I'm really interested in what it happens at the end of this film mm-hmm. but I haven't it doesn't sit as a standalone horror film because of that does that make sense yes I think it does I and haven't it, quite worked it out yet, as you can tell. I haven't can, quite worked my thoughts out on all this yet, but <laughs> we'll get there. We can work it out <laughs> in the next episode. Yeah. And I'm not going to ask you what you expect from the from Fear Street. Oh, my God. I, 1666. I know I always struggle pronouncing this year. It's such a weird year. I'm yeah, not, yeah. I'm not going to ask you what you expect from Fear Street 1666, because I know you've seen it. And I, I don't want any spoilers <laughs> for anyone who hasn't. But... I'm looking forward to our chat next week about the last film yes. and the I think the entire trilogy with Isora. Yeah. So thank you, Alison, so much for your time and for your insight into Fear Street 78. 
and a bit of 94 as well and yeah can you let people know where they can find more of your work online um, yes, of course. I'm on Instagram at um, Alison Pierce, so forward slash A L I S O N P E I R S E. Or I've got my own website, which is Alison Pierce again dot com. So you can find me there. And please buy my latest book. I didn't write all of it. There are essays from other people, so that means I can say it's amazing. And it's called um, Women Make Horror: Filmmaking, Feminism, and Genre. And everywhere that's good is selling this book. Trust me, you'll be able to find it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Alison. No problem. Thank look you. Look to the next one. Yay, thank you. And that's it for this bonus episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your shows. If you can, please do take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And you can also find out more about what we do over on thefinalghost.co.uk. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghost.uk and subscribe to our weekly newsletter for brand new commissioned essays and other horror treats. And next week will be our final deep dive into Fear Street 1666 and the trilogy as a whole, plus our exclusive interview with Lee Janiak. Let us know what you thought of the Fear Street film so far and what do you think will happen in the final installment? Thank you for listening and until next week.